Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Following Eli Gottlieb's seminar, Mechanics and Gearings of Long-Form Narrative, there was a free reception and reading in the Lighthouse Grotto. Eli read from his latest novel, Best Boy, released in August 2015. An audience Q&A wrapped up this wonderful evening. Eli Gottlieb is somebody who I think got kind of hornswoggled by Brian Kitely into teaching for us about a decade ago. Um, Brian is a professor at DU, and he sometimes sends me these lively prospects, and some of our best instructors have come from him. And um, I think he told Eli this would be a good thing, and Eli believed him. And I'm so grateful that he did because he came as somebody who, outside of academia, decided the writing was important to him. He wrote his ass off. We met him right as he was beginning kind of a 10-year binge of productivity, would you say? Which has been a comfort for me as I approach, like, I feel like a (laughs) hundred And still don't have anything finished. He started finishing things in this this great succession. His first novel, um, The Boy Who Went Away, was just reissued. One of my favorite books ever. So if you can get it, get it. He won the Rome Prize for this from the American Academy of Letters, Arts and Letters. And um, Best Boy is kind of, it's a companion piece. I won't call it a sequel because I'm not that trite (laughs) but it is related the the thematics are there there's a correlation you'll see I would read this one and then this one if I were you I mean has anybody have have you all read best boy the uh, or the boy who went away because this is one that was out of print for a while um and often the world comes in to correct things and that needed a correction um, so Eli is here. He's he's passing through. He now lives in New York City. You're in Brooklyn. Uh, no, I was. Now I'm in Manhattan. Well, so he he's doing better now than he was <laughs> just just a while ago. Uh, on his way to Santa Fe. Yeah. So we could all caravan down if we feel like it. But anyway, we're so pleased. So many people came up to me after his seminar today and said, this was my favorite seminar I've ever taken at Lighthouse. I blame Eli. What are we going to do from here? Mr. Eli Gottlieb. You guys have no idea how rare you are, how rare this place is. There's just, there's just nothing like it. Uh, there really isn't. Uh, Lighthouse is a unique operation. So um, I'm almost talked out, but not quite. Uh, and uh, this is um, uh, just out, this book. And it, I worked on it for a long time, about three and a half years, and or maybe four. And... Uh, I guess the, um, uh, you know, I just don't believe in long intros, so I'm not going to do one, but it's, it's narrated by uh, uh, an adult autistic man who um, has been living peacefully in his uh, residential therapeutic community for many years, 
both his parents have died in the interim, and um, at a certain point, his equilibrium is upset by the arrival of a staffer who resembles his feared and hated dad, now dead. And um, later in the book, uh, a, a woman uh, who tries to convince him to get off his meds. Um, those are just a couple of the plot points. There's also a malevolent new staffer who arrives who uh, you will hear about presently. He's got a roommate named, named Tommy Dune, and who who's, he also dislikes, a new roommate. There's all these sort of the perfect storm of bad stuff going on for this poor guy. Um, and um, if he gets too provoked, he surrenders to something he calls volts, which is a kind of an epileptoid seizure almost of the brain. Uh, it's based on reality. You know, he just happens to call it volts. So it, I mean, anyone who's had a temper tantrum as a, as a six-year-old probably can relate. Um, okay, so with no further ado. The morning after Tommy Dune tried to give me volts, I woke up and took my pills like I always do. Every day I take Risperdal to make me calm, Lipitor to make me healthy, Paxil to make me happy, Lunesta at night to make me sleep, fish oil to soften my stool, and a baby aspirin for my heart. They come in a bubble-packed roll, neatly arranged. The roll has the time and date marked on it in sections, so I know just where to tear off the special piece containing all the meds for that part of the day. The pills keep me always a little bit tired, but it's important that I take them because if not, they might call a Dr. Strong. Paging Dr. Strong, they say over the PA system when a villager is about to throw a tantrum and needs to be restrained by staff. Dr. Strong on the double, they say. I filled a big glass with warm water and took the pills in a single swallow. Then, because it was a Sunday morning, and I had a period of extended free time ahead of me. I sat and did what I'd been doing for several days now. I thought about the stick. Stock. Stalk. Stork. The stick was a pointed stick that belonged to Mr. Derizowitz, the custodian at Peyton. He used it to spear through paper lying on the paths and grass. As I worked alongside him on lawn crew on certain afternoons, I was sure that if I had the stick and didn't have to interrupt my walking to bend down, but could simply whisk stuff off the ground and into a bag I had on my shoulder just like him, I'd be a person already on his way out of Peyton and maybe one day live alone and even drive a car. So I studied this stick that was a pure pole with a point on it. Later the same afternoon, when free time was over and everyone was supposed to attend a talent show in the main hall, I walked across the empty campus to the woodworking workshop. There I found an old broomstick in a pile of wood. I used the special jigsaw with the skinny blade and the high humped back like a man praying, and I cut the end off. Then I sawed the flat head of a nail off, too, but quietly, and I gently hammered the nail into the stick and then filed the nail sharp again where it was flat from being hammered. This was a beautiful trash-spearing machine, and I was happy at myself, and I whistled as I cleaned up. When I was done, I put the stick behind some bushes outside and went on to the talent show. Except it turned out that it wasn't a talent show, but a sing-along, A sing-along is held usually in the main hall whenever we want to greet new staff. The problem was that when I entered the main hall that evening and I saw who the new staff was, I immediately felt sick. 
He was seated at the center of a crowd of people in the main hall, and they had just started the welcome song. It's done to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and it goes like this. Peyton living flies on high, touch the earth and touch the sky, walking tall and feeling joy in the hearts of girls and boys. And today we welcome a new staff who will help us out to laugh. Then everyone applauds, cheering like it's the best, funniest thing they've ever heard. But usually during these songs, I'm only mouthing the words because my mind is focused instead on the soda machine in the nearby alcove that is filled with clustering cool cans of Mountain Dew and Sprite and root beer. Sometimes after events, Ray Keen will let me have one. The new staff stood up. He had hair that was long in the back and short in the front. He had a mustache that drooped on either side like a picture of a Civil War general in a magazine. He waited until the singing was done, and then he said, uh, This is the part where I talk a little, right? Okay, name's Mike Hinton, and I'm from right down the road in Gatesboro. Short version is high school, and then what you call a non-starter phase at community college. Next up, we got uh, military service, which is two tours in Iraq, 21st Cavalry, 2nd Battalion. Hardest thing I've ever done in this life, and maybe the next one too, and pulled a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star doing it. Anyway, after my service is over and I come back home thinking I'm done with that, I'm like, okay, Lord, where do I go from here? People were nodding. So I began taking special ed classes, Mike said, which opened my eyes. Yes, sir, did. But pretty soon I got to feeling like I wanted to actually be doing something in the world rather than reading about in a book. Friends, I wanted to be getting my feet wet and my hands dirty. He looked around and made a slow, chewing motion like he was eating a piece of seriousness. But... <laughs> Bottom line, he said, it's really important for me to be here in this community of beautiful people making a difference. And thank you for your faith in hiring me. He smiled. Ta-da, the end. People applauded as Mike Hinton looked slowly around the room, trying to fork his eyes individually into the faces of people in the crowd. But when he got to me, instantly the bad feeling deepened in my gut like on the roller coaster when it shoots upwards so fast it leaves your stomach still hanging at the bottom. Underneath his mustache, he was wearing my father's same yellow teeth and eyes, and I started whimpering, unable to stop the bad remembering. My dad was dead, but he was back again as a speaking person looking out of someone else's face. My whimpering grew louder and soon became an uncontrollable bawling in my mouth. Several of the staff started moving towards me, but the face of Mike Hinton was shining at me like from a circle of light in the middle of the room. He looked like he knew exactly what I was thinking, and he was angry about it. He looked like I had just kicked dirt onto the white cake of his life. Ray Keen took me gently by the arm and out of the room and led me back to my cottage. Todd, shush now, she said. You know how you get with new men's staff and how you were with Roy and LeBron, but you're going to love Mike, honey. You really are. I've talked to him, and our man is one of the good guys, like you. She made me brush my teeth and wash my face while she stood in the door of my house, in the door of the bathroom of my house, watching. Afterwards, she came close and bent over me, and the warmth of the air around her body went into me in a calming way as she hugged me goodnight. I got into bed and turned on the radio. The stripe of numbers glowed. Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers was playing. I can remember every song I've ever heard. I can remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I first heard it. Mama was a piano teacher, and I'd spent a million hours sitting listening as she moved her hands over the keyboard and notes flew into the air and then gradually filled me up. Good night, sugar, Raikeen said softly and shut the door. It was early to go to bed, but staff made us do it if they thought we were getting nervous. 
pre-sleep, they called it. I did pre-sleep while thinking that the way my parents died had nothing to do with how a switch on a wall threw light across a room, but that it was still a kind of magic. It was a magic how they walked out of their clothes and bodies and simply disappeared. It was a magic how everything they owned suddenly lost its forward motion like a sailboat when the wind stops. My dad was gone. I'd seen the coffin. It was lowered on a kind of cloth band into the hole. Dirt fell with a rattle. Unchained melody ended, and two sir with love began. Oh, sorry. That's uh, somebody calling from the grave. Uh, 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 sorry. Uh, let's see. My dad, dirt fell with a rattle, unchained melody ended, and two sir with love began. Daddy wasn't coming back ever, but I was nervous anyway. I knew that in one of the cottages nearby, Mike was sitting, wearing my father's expression on his face and making up something specially bad just for me. I knew he was. I was sure of it. I started whimpering again and stayed there lying on my bed until everyone had gone to sleep. Then I put my clothes back on and went outside. I walked across the dark campus till I found the stick again in the bushes and I held it in my hand. I couldn't bear to push my mind back against anyone, but this wasn't my mind. It was a sharp stick that could fly through the air. I had heard where Mike lived, and I carried the stick to the bushes right near his cottage. Then I stayed there for a while, bent low over it, rocking and making the dog noise in my chest like my dad, with my eyes shut. Everybody thinks they know what's wrong with me, but they don't. They think I'm autistic, but they don't know exactly what that means either. A doctor named Eugene Bloiler made up the word autism in 1911, though it didn't get used on anybody until a long time later. The last name of Bloiler sounds like it might belong to a fat man who's bursting out of his clothes with a pop. But actually, he was a Swiss doctor with a mustache who was good with words because he also made up the one schizophrenia. After Eugene Bloiler, no one thought about autism for a while because of being distracted by world wars. But then starting in the 1940s, one person after another began explaining that they knew what autism was and you should let them tell you. Not only do I sometimes read the paper, I also read the Encyclopedia Britannica, too. No one knows that either, even though I have it under my bed. My mama first brought me the encyclopedia when I was 12 years old. I had just arrived at the Clovis Center, and she asked the director there to make a, quote, special exception, and he said yes, and so have all the other directors since. She used to bring me the Britannica yearbooks each year, too, until she died, Mama. Most people think the encyclopedia is there to make me happy like a piece of blanket from childhood, but I actually read it lots because the encyclopedia has a voice that belongs to a man sitting in a room at a table who wants to calmly talk about every single thing in the world, and it calms me to hear that. It calms me how he never gets angry or sick or makes the dog growl in his chest. It calms me that he only waits patiently for you to turn to the page so he can start talking again. I told Ray Keen about him, and she laughed and said she was going to call the Britannica Mr. B. Now, whenever I ask her a question she doesn't know the answer to, she says, why don't you ask Mr. B? When I asked him, Mr. B said that the explaining about autism has gone on for a while and continued till today, and still no one knows exactly what it is. He said this is true, even though scientists are always having all sorts of what he calls groundbreaking discoveries about autism. He says they're doing a lot of tying up autism to things in the environment when they're not doing groundbreaking. <laughs> Meanwhile, there are the skulls. 
I like thinking about the skulls. They're kept in museums in places like Germany and France, and they're shiny because they've been painted with varnish by museum people to keep them from rotting in air, which is called oxidation. The skulls are from a period of long ago known as the Neolithic. Mr. B says that this was when groups of people first began having fun together 8,000 years ago. He says they played string instruments, baked bread, and kept pets. He says they did things with their hair to look good to each other. The skulls have little holes in them. These holes are often square. Sometimes the cuts are perfect like the lines of a tic-tac-toe. They were probably made with a curved knife. Also, the holes have bone growth around them, which means the surgery was done on people who were still alive. The question is, why? Why'd they do it? Who was the first person who said, I know, I'll feel better when I cut a hole in my head? (laughs) No one knows the answer for sure, but Mr. B said that it's probably the first example ever in the whole world of someone being operated on by someone else to let the crazy out. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. All right. So, uh, what's uh, anybody have any questions? <laughs> I'm so I'm sort of question and answered out, but I'm happy to go. Yeah, go ahead. Writing nerd question. You talked in the seminar about the alternating chapters, some right. exposition right. and some right. action. Yeah. Sort of yeah. How do you see this chapter? This chapter inaugurates the uh, series of uh, sort of informational downloads that will recur at regular intervals throughout the book. And uh, they are definitely one of those alternating uh, elements of of the book. And in fact, this um, creates a sub-narrative within the larger narrative. This is recurred to and referred to again and again as the book goes. The the study of autism of the history of psychiatric... uh, of psychiatry in America and of a psychiatric medication in America is um, a sub theme of the book. And was that an intellectual decision to have that? No, it really was one of those things, like I was saying earlier, there's a narrative kind of drove me to do that. I understood that the reader needed a, you know, a kind of a breath mint between courses uh, every once in a while. And uh, that's how they functioned. It's literally a rest for the reader, you know. So, um, and I, and it builds its own, and I, I it complements the material. It deepens the experience of reading the book, you know, I think. I mean, I, I hope. I don't know. There's something that they, in literary criticism they talk about the fallacy of intentionality. Like, basically, the, the writer has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, where did your interest in autism come from? My older brother uh, is autistic. And I grew up uh, with him, and uh, he wasn't. I'm, in fact, his guardian now. And um, uh, so, yeah, I, I got it firsthand. Yep. I noticed the um, in Best Boy. Yeah. <clears throat> that um, the Jewish character, the Jewish man, was treated rather unforgiving. Yeah. I mean, I don't want you to, you know, psychologize yourself. Right, right. No, I think I just found it more interesting if if the the me character was a jerk. It was just more fun. (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> it really was more fun. And, um, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is that I was asked this a couple of days ago that people said, were you angry growing up with an autistic brother? And I said, yes. If anybody wants to know more about this, uh, this uh, Sunday that I've written an editorial in The New York Times about all this, about, um, uh, you know, autism and uh, my adult brother and growing up and so forth. And, and, and I talk about the rage. You can't, you can't sugarcoat it. When you grow up with a developmentally disabled sibling, they suck all the oxygen out of the room. You grow up in the suburbs of your own family. It's just the way it is. And the mother and the, and the disabled kid bond like, you know, protons and neutrons. And it's uh, indissoluble. And uh, everybody else is just left to kind of fend for themselves. So you, you, you grow up plenty pissed off. Uh, so I, and I liked, you know, I liked showing more dramatically what could happen to someone like the sibling of uh, I'm actually a fairly caring guardian. But in, in this in this book, he's like a, a drunken money grubbing lout, you know. Uh, <laughs> so uh, but yeah, any any other questions? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean that—that's that was the hardest thing to do, um, and uh, I—it, um, I kind of had it in me forever. I mean, the truth is that I knew early on that my uh, family was worthy of uh, someone had to write this stuff about them because it was just too nuts. They were not like the families of my friends, you know. Somebody had to write about them, and. I began writing about them very, very early on. And in a way, this, this voice is the product of a long uh, distillation. That said, on a technical level, it was quite difficult because I'm a literary writer. I love literary sentences. And I had to make do with a drastically restricted vocabulary. Uh, a lot of the niceties of style just went by the wayside. There's very little metaphor and simile in the book. Occasionally, there's, I mean, there's a kind of a poetry, but it's not conventional literary poetry. Um, Sentences are blunt, they're short, there are very few commas in the book. You know, all those digressive clauses that literary writers are in love with, gone. You know, and I felt like I was pushing myself into a place that I was very unfamiliar with and very uncomfortable with in a way because all of my typical literary uh, camouflage was gone. All the scaffolding was gone, you know, and I was very exposed as a writer. And um, it was psychically exhausting to write this book just exhausting in a way that none of the other books were and that's why I'm probably still you know kind of semi uh, paralyzed a year later I still haven't really gotten onto the next project you know which was not the case in the other books I immediately pivoted into a new book not so which still doesn't completely answer your question I mean finally it's a mystery you know I don't know you know I don't exactly know but it's a little bits and pieces of those things Yeah, I wrote it uh, first in the second person. I wrote it first in the second person, and that allowed me to inhabit the strangeness of his point of view and to see a little bit more through his eyes, um, to find that merge between language and perception and, and strangeness. You know, I violate all sorts of laws of grammar in this book. The sentences are often, my editor said, you junked up a lot of the, the sentences. And what I was actually trying to do was find the strange um ungrammatical moment of awkwardness that could faithfully replicate his peculiar point of view. And that's what I really try to do to, to see. There's a lot of books that describe psychiatric conditions from without. Um, like for example, motherless Brooklyn, you know, the guy's this Tourette's 
syndrome cop. He also happens to have a tremendous literary vocabulary and an immense amount of literary reference, you know, and not say anything away from him. But what I want to do was actually put it in the language, you know, in the language, put the disability in the language. And that required a lot of negotiation internally. And, you know, uh, how do you make somebody who's uh, perceptually clo- closed down and self-enclosed interested enough in other people so that you can actually power a novel with it? Because a novel is always a dance of relations, you know. So how do you make other people interesting enough? It was tricky. Yeah. Um, has your brother read? He's, he couldn't, no. no. Uh, this actually is uh, his penmanship, however. This is, this, is his, uh, this is my little tribute to him. Yeah. No, he just doesn't. You, you probably don't realize how much uh, cultural sophistication it requires to read a book. Oh, no, I mean... Yeah, he's so... No, well, you don't know. You don't know. Uh, I, I shouldn't say that because you don't know how, how uh, severely damaged he is. No, he's institutionalized and um, he can read and he can write at a very rudimentary level. But, you know, like I have him say in the book... Um, I can't watch TV because it goes too fast and everyone seems to know each other already. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know. I love that you use Mr. B. Yeah. I mean, that was just... Oh, thank you. Reducing it to like, right. is that three letters? Right, exactly. It was just <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I known, I've known of a lot of people who are parents of autistics, autistic individuals. You know, PC does not allow you to describe people as autistics these days. It's like calling people with cancer cancers. Uh, you know, autistic, autistic individuals. Right. <laughs> uh, and they, uh, they respond to it. I mean, it was a very interesting. One woman said to me, I can't tell you. She said, I thought it was going to be the saccharine treatment of this issue. And I can't tell you how glad I was to read the following line. She's an 18-year-old son who's autistic. She's, uh, where the, 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 the me character says to him, uh, uh, just because you're ill doesn't mean you can't also be a selfish shit. And uh, she said, I, she said it was like a liberation, you know, because of the rage that you feel as a mom towards a kid who's just such a black hole, you know, she had a severely autistic kid. You also love them. It's not to take away anything away from that, but there is, you know, the rage. I think that's called <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Well, I really enjoyed it as a literary work. I thought it was wonderful. I, I, I thought it was great. The play, which is uh, the taste, the Toast of the Town in New York, I did not like, but even though it was brilliantly staged. I thought it was great. I mean, that guy took a lot of flack because it was not considered faithfully autistic. And his defense was, I never said he was autistic. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm going all in. I mean, uh, I'm not trying to hide if they want to. And I'm going to get flack. I, I'm going to get flack for that editorial. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago while writing this book about how hard it was to inhabit a disabled voice. And I described autism as a pathology. And uh, the autism community really came after me. They were very, very activist, highly organized. And as I say in this editorial, because of the big tent thing that's happened diagnostically with autism, the spectrum, the advent of spectrum, 
a lot of people are so high functioning, they consider themselves to be autistic, but they think of their autism as a kind of a gift or a visionary access, you know, in life. And uh, so they're very offended when, you know, but my brother was so-called classical or severe autism, and it was a pathology. It destroyed our family. You know, it was not a, a light recreational illness. It was, uh, <laughs> it was a full-on life changer, you know, so... Yes. I didn't get a chance to sit in on your class, and I'm, I'm curious how many drafts you went through. Oh, it was endless. Left, endless. If there's anything that uh, you have to leave out, that yeah, there, there always is. Hard. Yeah, there, there, there. Yeah, there always is. There always is. I mean, this book took so long for me to find the shape and the form and the voice, the final voice. You know, there's that line about you always have to kill your darlings, and and it's really true. I can't remember what if there were any like specific ones. I'm sure there were. I know there were. I mean, yeah, there were. I mean, I did. I did all of this. Um, I was talking in the class about how you can um, deviate from the path of the novel through uh, the delusion that research is a kind of writing. And, uh, and uh, I did that with this. I wrote these long treatises on, for example, fascinating subjects to me, like how psychiatric meds are named. You know, it's a really interesting subset and, and all these things. But only very, very late in the book are you able to make the truly fatal reckoning with what stays and what has to go when you really see the fuselage finally emerging you know and then you make the last cuts and it feels great i mean it was john cheever who said elimination is the highest joy in life and uh <laughs> and uh, i can relate as can anybody who's doing those delicious cuts like i'm I, you know, i'm losing weight and it's just all i have to do is hit delete <laughs> so any other questions? All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, showing up. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.